Today's episode of Pot on the Hill is brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers, Australia's leading social justice law firm, championing the rights of everyday Australians since 1919. To find out more, visit morrisblackburn.com.au. Remember that Pot on the Hill is available every week on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. And if you have any questions to ask of us at the pod team, suggestions or inquiries, email us at podcast at vic.alp.org.au. Little song about a man called Guff and a little boy wanted to be tarred with the same brush. He learned Latin, held his head up high, and he hated the liberals, though he didn't know. This week on Pod on the Hill, we are joined by Nick Stakos. He was first elected to the Victorian Parliament in 2014 when he won Bentley with a margin of 0.8%. And when you fast forward to 2018, he turned that margin, the third most marginal electorate in Victoria, into a margin of over 11%. So we are delighted to have Nick here on the podcast to talk to him about a whole range of things. Nick, thank you very much for joining us here on Pot on the Hill. Great to be with you, Toby. I've been waiting to be on Pot on the Hill for years. Well, we've been waiting to have you. So this is Excellent. a perfect alignment of interests and goals. Fantastic. <laughs> that's, that's, that's wonderful. If you'd like to hear on Pot on the Hill, try to learn a little bit about our MPs, where they've come yeah. from, their background and things like that. So I believe your family came to Australia in the 1960s and 70s. Can you just flesh out a bit more of the family history? Yeah, that's right. So my family, both sides of my family are from Greece and my my grandparents arrived in the early 1960s with my mum and her older sister. My mum was two at the time. And I guess they did the usual things that Greek and Italian migrants of the period did. They worked in factories. Um, in fact, the second day that my grandmother was in Melbourne, she got on a tram and she uh, stayed on the tram until she could see factories. And then when she saw the factory, she got off the tram, walked into a factory and was employed, you know, at, at, right, right then and there. It it's was amazing. It was easy to get a, a, a job in a factory. The good old then, days, course, yeah, that's yeah, incredible. To get, to get unskilled work, but uh, you needed to do a few of them to get by. And, and my grandparents worked a few factory jobs each to afford the rent in a one room in a house, which they lived in with their two children at the time. So, um, so look, things were tough, although there was a lot of opportunity here, and that's, uh, that's something that was very important to them. And then later on, they again did what a lot of Greek and Italian migrants of the time did, and they opened a milk bar. Uh, it was either a milk bar or a fish and chip shop in those days, mm -hmm. or a fruit shop, mm -hmm. um, and they opened a milk bar in uh, South Melbourne, and that was up the road from the Armstrong's recording studio where you had the likes of John Farnham and Skyhooks and Sherbet recording at the time and uh, and they'd Iconic. be customers at the milk bar. Wow. Including John Farnham. Yeah, right. Yeah. And do they have good memories of, of John Farnham? Like really Yeah. Uh, my mum says that she used to pretend that she was sick so she didn't have to go to school so she could see John Farnham. <laughs> 
Um, he 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 turned up in a motorbike actually. Yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah. come in and like order a milky bar or something like that. Yeah, Did he have a all preferred of that. Treat well, or... well, back then, of course, milk bars were different. They were cafes. They were more general purpose as well. So mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, yep. yeah. Mm, amazing. And my dad, of course, arrived um, a little bit later. I think he arrived 1969 or 70 with his brother and uh, his sister and. Um, and uh, he was 17 at the time. So it was really a, a similar story for him. But I, I do think that the migrant story of Australia is one of appreciating the opportunity that this country gives you, but also one of very, very hard work. Mm-hmm. And your your grandfather was a fan of Gough Whitlam, wasn't he? Absolutely. My, my grandfather um, loved Gough dearly. I think that's probably one of the reasons why my family is Labor. And actually, Goff is the reason why I think the Greek community to this day overwhelmingly votes Labor in Australia. Um, you know, I um, I remember somebody telling me that Goff uh, had visited Lonsdale Street one day and it was as though God had arrived on the earth sort of thing. Um, but he was the he was the first leader, I think, that made migrants feel very welcome in this country. Um, and uh, we owe a great debt to Gough for many things, but including probably being the leader who pioneered multiculturalism. Mm. And that's interesting. Do you think there was a, as well, was there anything else that drew people to Gough from, from the Greek community? I was just actually thinking, and this may be completely off, but he did have quite this kind of regal, like almost like Roman, you know, like you can see him Absolutely. comparing himself to Cicero and things like that, like he wasn't afraid to link things to, to history. Like is that part of the picture, do you think? Well, he was a scholar in classical Athenian history and uh, I think that's something that the Greeks loved about him. Um, but he was just this giant figure, I think, as well. He, um, uh, he, he saw uh, the migrants of the time as, as equal to every other Australian. And I actually think that it was it was actually when Gough was Prime Minister that my grandfather finally decided to take out citizenship. Right. He'd been here for years. Hmm. But it, Gough made him want to actually become a citizen. It locked him in. That's Absolutely. interesting. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, because my grandfather had always dreamed of going back to Greece one day. Yeah. Um, but he became a citizen when Gough was Prime Minister. He, he adored Gough. Mm. And and so, I mean, you actually got involved in politics at quite a young age. You were elected to the Glen Ira Council when you were 19. Is it fair to say that growing up, politics was something that your family kind of talked about at home? Was your life infused with politics? Not particularly, no. It was something that kind of developed. Um, I'm very close with um, my cousin, Steve Stakos, who's also in the Labor Party. Um, we've been like brothers growing up. Um, and he he had joined the Labor Party a little bit ahead of me, but it was it was him and I who had this um, interest. Uh, the way I joined the party, my parents for a short period were running this coffee shop in Clayton up the road from Simon Crean's electorate office. And he came in one day for lunch and I was so excited to see him, got to talking to him and he told me that there uh, was a branch that was meeting um, over in his office. This was quite some years ago. Um, and that I should join, and that's how it happened. That's how it happened. And actually, many years later, I um, was working for Simon um, in the last couple of years of his parliamentary career, and I reminded him of that, and he said, well, that was one of the... uh, 
the best recruitments I ever made. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's and and so you you decided to get involved with politics through Steve. It sounds like partly. Um, what was it that drove you to get involved with the the council? Like that nineteen's quite a. I've got to admit, when I was nineteen, I was still stuffing around. You know, like I know I know mm. you, you went to university as well. Yeah. What was it that kind of drove you to to work at the council in particular? I think in politics, everybody's pathway is very very different. Um, I I'm aligned to a union, like a lot of people in the Labor Party, but I didn't come through the union movement. Um, it's always been very local for me. I've lived in East Bentley all my life, still live in East Bentley. And at the time in the city of Glen Ira, um, the council, uh, I, I guess, was characterised by a lot of infighting. There um, was a municipal inspector's report. The state government, upon receiving that report, chose to sack the council. Therefore, I thought if I was going to run for council, that would be a really good time because even though I was really, really young and visibly very young, um, I probably had the best shot because people would be looking for something different. And in fact, at that election of the nine councillors elected, uh, four of us were under the age of 30. So people were indeed looking for something different um, after a very difficult period. Mm. And what did you what kind of issues did you work on while you were on the council? What kind of did it give you insight into how politics works or why politics is important? It did, but the greatest insight it gave me uh, is how to serve your constituents. Uh, I think I, I was on there for a few years and the previous council were fighting between themselves so much that they couldn't make any big strategic decisions for the municipality. So our council and mind you I Politically, I was in the minority on our council. It was mainly Liberal Party members. I was the only member of the Labor Party. But the council made some important decisions. Uh, one was to build the Glen Ira Sports and Aquatic Centre, which replaced the old East Bentley Pool. And that was after a big campaign by Rob Hudson, the then member for Bentley, to save the East Bentley Pool. Um, but a number of other things. There are a number of other things. I've, I've always been a big advocate for neighbourhood houses, so... I instigated the first ever funding agreement for neighbourhood houses in the city of Glen Ira, uh, which has been maintained today. Um, they, these are, are all very important decisions that um, were made during that three-year term on council. Um, but it wasn't just the Glen Ira Sports and Aquatic Centre. It wasn't just neighbourhood houses. It was also the things you don't see, uh, like um, roads and footpaths and drains, uh, that sort of vital infrastructure that is not as flashy or sexy as anything else. Uh, the previous council wasn't even uh, investing appropriately in those things. Um, we made sure that we were. So um, it did teach me a lot about government, but I think most importantly of all, it taught me a lot about about uh, serving constituents, which has held me in good stead now as a Member of Parliament. Yeah. Morris Blackburn Lawyers, Australia's leading social justice law firm, have been fighting for your rights for nearly 100 years. Because they believe that fairness is a universal right, not just reserved for the chosen few. They know if one person is denied the right to be safe, to be free, to be heard, or to be equal, then everyone else's rights are at risk too. And that includes you. So whether it's returning stolen land, protecting new mums at work, or demanding equality, Morris Blackburn Lawyers help shine a light on everyday injustices. Because who knows when your rights might be affected? Morris Blackburn Lawyers, fighting for fair since 1919. To find out more, 
visit morrisblackburn.com.au. Just actually take a step back to kind of the family connection. Where, where in Greece are they from and have you, have you been back there? My dad's side is from a place called Nafpaktos, which is a two or two and a half hour drive from Athens. Uh, it's a seaside uh, town. And my mother's side is from the island of Samos. So I have been back to both. Um, I was there in July. I was there in July, um, so that was that was an interesting experience. Yeah, mm. um, and look, they're they're very they're very picturesque places. Mm. Of course, of course, Greece has had very troubling economic times over the last decade or so, um, but it's always good to go back. It's it, it's it's a country, in my view, that is steeped in history. It's one of the most historic places on earth. Um, so I, I do enjoy visiting uh, when I can. I mean, who doesn't enjoy visiting Europe, really? Yeah. In particular, Greece. Yeah, absolutely. Did you have any, when you were there, and I don't know specifically how the economy is going in the, those specific places, but I know, as you were saying, Greece is still struggling post the GFC and the austerity measures that followed. Did you have any kind of reflections on, like, I don't know how things are going there presently, but um, did, did you have any reflections on, on kind of where political ideas are at, if you like, from visiting Greece? I'm, I'm curious about, in a way, Australian politics seems to be in an odd state because we've had 20, you know, mm. eight years of mm. economic growth. Mm. Like, it's, mm. I, I've found when I've travelled yeah. over the last five years, it's interesting going to different places and observing... Absolutely. You know, yeah. So... Definitely. I've had the opportunity to travel uh, quite a bit in recent years, including to Greece, quite a few times to Greece, including two years ago with the Premier Daniel Andrews. And in fact, we met with the Prime Minister while we were there. Um, and um, I always I compare every country to Australia, as we all do when we travel. Um, and it's not difficult to arrive at the conclusion that Australia is the best country on earth for a variety of reasons. I think the thing about Greece is that it has never had a sense of any sort of order or system. And I think that has been its problem. I think that's partly to do with crooked politicians. There's no doubt about that over time. Um, and so I was really inspired by the recently defeated Prime Minister of Greece, Alexis Tsipras, who the Premier and I met with two years ago. Um, he, Many would say he was from the radical left, but when he became Prime Minister, he uh, had to moderate his views and be more pragmatic and uh, work with Greece's creditors, work with the rest of Europe to get Greece out of the position it was in. And he, he did that. And in the four years that he was Prime Minister, um, things did improve in Greece. There's no doubt about that. Even the current Prime Minister from the Conservative Party um, uh, does actually acknowledge um, that Greece's economic condition uh, has improved. And, you know, it was interesting. When I was uh, in my dad's town, I was walking um, to the shops and I overheard, because it was just after the election, I'd overheard two neighbours, a man and a woman, having an argument about the election. One voted for uh, Tsipras, uh, the other voted for the Conservative Party. And the woman had said that uh, Tsipras had destroyed Greece. And I thought to myself, well, you know, what was happening in Greece four years ago when Tsipras took over? It's actually better than it was four years ago. And... Um, 
Tipperus is a young man in his 40s. Their problem started before he was mm. born. So I, 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 think, I, think, I think the thing about Greece is, though, being of Greek heritage, um, I feel this strongly, is that over thousands and thousands of years, it's lurched from crisis to crisis, but is still there. Mm. Um, 400 years of Ottoman occupation, Mm. Uh, the Nazi flag once flew from the Parthenon, yet it's still there. Mm. And I think that um, the next generation in Greece, and I've spoken to a lot of young people, um, I think they demonstrate a lot of promise for the future. Mm. And I really hope so, because I think Athens is one of the most important cities um, in the Western world mm. for everything it has given birth to. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's kind of a... It is kind of a comforting observation, I think, because these do seem to be times where there is this sense that week on, week off of political crisis, if you like, like whether it's Trump or, you know, I think it's less so in Australia, but certainly in American politics, there is this perpetual sense that, you know, things are awful. How could they get this bad? You know, politics isn't working. Well, I'm always disturbed by when there is when there are economic concerns, people lurch to the right. Mm. And I, I I get concerned about that because I know how the right plays on those economic mm -hmm. concerns, blames people who are different uh, for those economic problems. These are things we've seen time and time again, and they are absolutely frightening. So if I can take that opportunity to pivot to the work our Victorian government mm. is doing, and, you know, I think when, when, you, when you think about the agenda of the Victorian government, regardless of what it is, it always comes back to jobs, mm. jobs for ordinary people. And I do think that's what we need to hear more from the Federal Labor Party about. We, mm. we do need to hear more about jobs for ordinary people. Climate change is a case in point, you know. Um, we can talk about the science behind it um, and we can, we can deride people for being idiots for not taking it seriously or we can do what um, we're doing in the Andrews government and that is investing in renewable energy in a way this country has never seen before and in the process creating thousands of jobs for mm. blue-collar workers. Mm. Um, I think that is the sort of narrative a, a modern Labor Party needs to take. Mm. Well, it's interesting because it seems at this stage that in a lot of ways, and the Andrews government is a good example of this, that the right of, of Australian politics, and this is particularly true at a federal level, when it comes to economics, is much more ideological than Labor has often been. Like, I think the Andrews government has been pragmatic and sensible in terms of rolling out infrastructure, acknowledging, like, while managing the budget well, this is a time to spend, we need to get, you know, the, the Victorian economy kind of needs a boost in terms of those jobs. Whereas at a federal level, you see that even though, you know, in terms of interest rates, you know, now a lot of federal bodies that provide advice to government are saying we need to spend more on infrastructure, we need to be basically following the example of the Andrews government. There is a an ideological refusal at a federal level, you know, because of this fear of, the, uh, this constructed fear of, of debt. Like, it's, it's interesting that I think that commitment to just getting things done has actually meant that the government, the Andrews government, is less Well, ideological. the federal government has staked everything on a surplus, haven't they? One that could well be wiped out by a recession anyway. Um, whereas, you're right, the Andrews government um, has stimulated the Victorian economy to the point where it is the powerhouse of the Australian economy. 
and this historic investment in infrastructure. I think we're spending at the moment on average over $13 billion a year on infrastructure, but we're also leveraging that historic investment to create jobs and opportunities for Victorians many of whom but for Labor wouldn't have these opportunities. I'm thinking of the 10% apprentices, engineering cadets and trainees who are getting a gig on um, major government projects. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Indigenous Australians, about 100 of whom worked on the level crossing removals on the Dandenong line, for instance. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of uh, uh, returned servicemen and women um, who work on our projects as well, including about 30 of them on that Dandenong line project. These are all important, life-changing things. And we have been able to make these massive investments and then leverage off these investments to create opportunities for all Victorians. Mm -hmm. And I think that, again, when you pivot back to jobs, because at the end of the day, somebody having dignity in their life is somebody who has a job and a secure income and can provide for themselves and their families. That's what Labor is about. Mm. We probably needed to hear more about that at the last federal election. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting, actually, this kind of neatly takes us to, uh, I guess, questions about the 2018 campaign and your re-election. Um, uh, uh, but It'd be interesting to know, I mean, so in 2014, you were elected in, in Bentley by, at the time, it was the third most marginal seat in Victoria. And four years later, like the turnaround was pretty incredible. What had happened in Bentley, do you think, to explain that turnaround? Like what had changed? Yeah, so it, that's true. 2014, um, only just won the seat, 0.8% margin, 568 votes, 568 votes. Quite an achievement. <laughs> a, a, absolutely. It was a very nervous fortnight, you know, um, just hearing from the scrutineers every day, right, mm. yeah, this, this is where we are at at the moment. And I thought, okay. But we got there in the end. We got there in the end. And I made a decision, you know, that I could only, I might only have this, um, seat for one term, four years, and I wanted to do as much as possible in that time. And I think it's a healthy way of looking at this, thinking you've got this opportunity now, um, and re regardless of whether you have the safest seat or the most marginal seat, when you get there, the clock starts ticking anyway for everybody. So there were a number of things that I wanted to do, um, level crossing removals, of course, but also um, rebuilding schools and doing various other things um, in the health space as well. We set about delivering all of our commitments and much, much more. Um, the government made significant investments in transport, in education, um, in health, in jobs, in my electorate, uh, across the state. Um, and I certainly was very sort of um, at peace with what I had managed to achieve for my constituents by the end of the four years. And for me, a second term would have been a bonus. I always dearly wanted a second term, of course, because I wanted our government to continue. But I also wanted an increasingly right-wing liberal party to stay away from the Treasury benches. So... We worked very hard to win that seat again, what is traditionally a swing seat. Um, and uh, while I always thought that I had a good chance of a second term, I always knew it was far from certain. But on election night, you could have knocked me over with a feather um, when I saw that result. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the first booth, I thought, oh, well, that's just a, 
a rogue booth sort of thing. Then the second one came in, the third one came in. I thought, well, I'd better have a look at what's happening across the rest of the state. And it, it was a landslide win. It was arguably the biggest win we've had. You know, 2002 was another big one, but this, this was different in many ways. Um, and I just saw that as two things. A, just an endorsement of the significant work the Andrews Labor government had done, um, but B, a rejection of the very negative fear-mongering politics that for four years was being pushed by the Liberal opposition. Um, I was sitting in Parliament for those four years. I was just absolutely gobsmacked at some of the behaviour I saw and some of the things that were said really did feel like there were no rules anymore mm. in politics, like anything could be said about anyone um, and any lies could be pushed by anyone mm. and it would just be acceptable. And, you know, I think tr Trump's election really did usher in the post-truth era mm. um, and I did feel that um, that it infected the Liberal Party. Mm. Absolutely. So, so did you have a sense of that kind of tonal difference, like when you're actually out engaging with voters in 2018 compared to 2014, like when you went out and spoke to people, was, was there were there particular things they would say to you? What kind of uh, atmosphere was there? It is hard for me to judge as the local member um, because obviously a lot more people knew me in 2018 than in 2014. Um, so it, it was it was difficult for me to judge that. Where I noticed that there was something in the air uh, by way of strong support for the Labor Party was on election day. Mm. I started off at um, at the booth in Bentley at the Our Lady of the Sacred Heart College and I'd handed out at that booth before in previous elections and I'd never felt it so positive for the Labor Party mm. before. That's when I could actually tell, right, something something different is happening here. And after that, like to, to, to win 61.9% um, of the two-party preferred vote in a seat like Bentley, which has never been done before, you've got to just assume that Liberal voters voted for you as well, which they did. And I've met many Liberal voters who voted for us in the Bentley electorate. And I've, I've always asked them, why did you, why did you change a lifelong voting behaviour and vote Labor this time round. And the response would almost always be infrastructure, the amount of money that's going into infrastructure, the activity we see across the state. And Daniel seems to be a leader who uh, keeps his promises. Um, that's why so many Liberal Party voters decided to give us a go this time. And, you know, I, I certainly will be doing everything I can to maintain their their trust and confidence. Mm. I guess that actually quite neatly takes us on to, you know, the next area, which is what you'd like to see happen in the seat of Bentley, you know, what aspirations you have in terms of other kinds of changes that you'd, you'd like to see potentially. Absolutely. Well, we... There's not much we can do by way of level crossing removals anymore in my electorate. You've taken out three, yeah? Taken out three, Bentley, McKinnon and Ormond. Mm. And, you know, it's it's the biggest project the area is ever going to see. Mm. And uh, the Liberal Party campaigned against it. Um, you know, they've got this interesting... They've got this interesting way of handling things. Yeah, we don't oppose level crossing removals, but we oppose any disruption uh, and we oppose... Um, everything to do with them, um, but we don't oppose level crossing <laughs> removals. But here's a petition. Um, so, you know, so we withstood those sorts of um, 
those sorts of campaigns, although they didn't get as toxic as the anti-Skyrail campaign that my colleague mm-hmm. Steve Demopoulos yeah. had to had to endure. But but I digress. We, um, you know, we we did quite a bit in terms of uh, level crossing removal. So there isn't much more to do there in my electorate. Um, we've spent a lot of money as well on rebuilding schools, and the previous government. Um, had not completed a single school rebuild during their time in office in the Bentley electorate. Um, We've rebuilt nearly every school in the area and one big one that is coming up is the second campus of McKinnon Secondary College. Now, McKinnon Secondary College is one of the most highly sought-after public secondary schools in Victoria. Um, It uh, currently has 2,200 students on the one campus um, the lab, Labor governments over the years have invested heavily in McKinnon Secondary College um, and we promised a second campus at the last election. My opponent did not and we will be opening that in 2022. So that's going to be a big one this term. Um, there are going to be all sorts of other things this term. Um, uh, a new ambulance station for East Bentley. We currently don't have our own ambulance station and that builds upon the significant investment that the government made um, to, to our ambulance service um, over the first term where first we ended the war with our paramedics uh, that the previous Liberal government had waged. Um, we invested in more paramedics. We treated our paramedics well. And today, of course, we have the best ambulance response times on record. And this new ambulance station, they Bentley, will improve upon that. But look, there, there are other things that I really want to get done. And I'll, I'll mention one of those things um, Moorabbin Hospital is in East Bentley. It's actually where I was born. Um, It's a much different hospital these days. It is um, mainly elective surgery and cancer. It's one of our leading cancer centres in Victoria. And uh, people come from far and wide to access treatment at Moorabbin Hospital, including, as I understand it, a number of women um, from the Gippsland region uh, who come for uh, gynaecological cancer treatment. And... A few of them find that when they get here, they struggle when it comes to securing accommodation um, for their cancer treatment, which may run for anything up to a couple of months. Um, And I do really want to make that experience easier for them. When they come to Moorabbin Hospital, when they come to East Bentley, which to them coming from Gippsland is um, a strange place. It's far from home. Um, I, I really do want to make that experience easier for them. If there is one worry we can take off their shoulders, it should be not having to fork out thousands of dollars for accommodation. Mm. So that's something I'm working on at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Like especially when someone's going through something as traumatic absolutely. as that. How have the demographics in Bentley changed between 2014 and 2018? Well, the demographics in Bentley have changed over a, a longer period over a a significantly longer period. Uh, It's going from... It's interesting. So my electorate um, is on old market gardening land uh, that was developed in uh, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, And a lot of uh, young couples bought um, a property off the plan, uh, then raised their families. uh, And then those uh, couples, of course, uh, grew old. Um, and we're seeing them now slowly being replaced by new young families who are moving into the area principally for the fantastic public schools and Catholic schools that we've got 
in the electorate. But one change that I, I have seen to the electoral roll, I should say, is that uh, marriage equality plebiscite in 2017 meant that a lot more people had enrolled to vote, mm. not just in the Bentley electorate, but including in the Bentley electorate. I think we get a couple of hundred new electors every month. Um, and in the two months during that plebiscite, I think we had 1,500 new electors. It was quite significant. Yeah. And there wouldn't have been many of them voting Liberal at the last state election. No, no, I don't yeah. think so. It, it, it does seem like on reflection the, the marriage quality plebiscite was in many ways a miscalculation from the federal government in terms of just those demographics and g encouraging people to, to sign up for, for the role. It would have been a terribly painful time for many in the LGBTIQ community. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I think it was a, a, a massive enrolment drive for the progressive parties of our country as well. I, I, there's mm. no doubt about that. No doubt about that. Absolutely. Um, to ask a couple of personal questions, if you like, I believe you're a bit of an opera fan. Yeah, no, I I do I do like to uh, visit the opera. What yeah, a, absolutely. What, where, where did that come from? Out of interest. I don't know. I've always been interested in what people can do with their voices, really, and I just think that people with the ability to, well, people who are classically trained, but who also have the natural ability to uh, stretch their voices either as a, a soprano or a, or a tenor or a baritone. I think that's quite remarkable. I've always been fascinated by that. Absolutely. And and do you have a, a favourite opera? Is there a particular opera as a politician perhaps you relate to? Because often operas are, like, often, mm. thankfully politics is, is a little less bloody well, than op operas. Operas always end in tragedy. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They I mean, always end in tragedy. Politics recently has at times felt, you know, yeah, a little bit yeah. like that. To, there are... There are some synergies between opera and politics. <laughs> in fact, you'll probably find more prima donnas in politics than uh, than you will on the stage sometimes. But no, look, it's hard to go past um, some of the um, beautiful operas that were created by uh, Verdi, for instance, uh, Traviata, uh, Rigoletto, mm. uh, all of them. And and you know, uh, I think Australia excels in everything. Um, and we've excelled I in opera. I mean, Dame Joan Sutherland, in my view, is one of the three greatest voices this country has ever produced. Um, so, and you know what? Melbourne, it's the arts capital. Sydney might have the Sydney Opera House, but that's all they've got. <laughs> that's all they've got. We are the arts capital. Yeah, except we've got a whole precinct, you know? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but you, because you also get up to a bit of painting, don't you, as well? Like watercolour, I believe, is your preferred medium? Uh, no, no, I've never painted in watercolour. Did I? No, I acrylic. 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 Is, and the I reason why, know. the reason I why I use acrylic is because I make a lot of mistakes and you can paint over with acrylic. Yeah, right. Right, so. Well, that's how you learn, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so I've been learning a long time then. But uh, <laughs> but no, you know, here's the thing. So the reason why I, got, I started painting is because I've just recently celebrated my 10th anniversary as the president of Godfrey Street Community House, which is something I do in my spare time. And um, around that time, 10 years ago, I um, we, we didn't have an active uh, art program at the community house, and a community house really does need an art program. So 
a friend of mine, Russell Nolan Lewis, is Sir Sidney Nolan's first cousin and an artist in his own right. And I said, Russell, do you want to come and lead the, the art program at Godfrey Street? And, and he said yes, and he's still doing that to this day. Um, and uh, he was running the acrylic and oil classes. And the Saturday class looked a little bit sad with numbers. So I, I joined it just to fill in the numbers, not having painted before. And I'm still there. I know a lot of people say that it's relaxing. I think that's complete rubbish. It does not relax me. It frustrates me. I think I produce a decent one, um, you know, every tenth time. Uh, I usually abandon them. So I've got um, a canvas graveyard in my garage. Um, So the only time I will ever put one on Facebook uh, is when I have a decent one. So that's once every few years. Yep. <laughs> I, I think I think that's really admirable though. Like pursuing that kind of recreation. like I, I think I mean I you know, my background's in, in, in writing and in journalism, but I do try to write recreationally, you know, in, in a way that is not specifically bound up with a gig or anything like that, because I really do think that it helps uh, reflect and aid introspection if you like. And I think it's easy whether you work in the media or in politics to get too caught up in in that world at times and and the arts can be a really good way to you know help you take a step back sometimes well i think that's a really important point that you've made um in the last term we built a steam center at bentley secondary college and some people ask why is it steam and not stem and it's steam because we've included art in amongst the science technology engineering and maths And there's a very specific reason for that, and that is because having an artistic or creative mind is key to innovation, key to innovation and key to our future economy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nick, thank you so much for your time. Before we let you go, we always have a lightning round to to finish off uh, uh, the... um, uh, our interviews where we kind of get, you know, we, we put the really hard questions to, to our guests here on Pot on the Hill. So um, to start off with, uh, uh, Barnsey or Farnsey? I know you're a fan of both. I'm a real fan of both, but I have to say Farnsey because he was my grandma's customer at the milk bar. That's very fair. That's <laughs> and he's one of the three best voices this country has produced. Absolutely. He yeah. is the, he is So the Dame voice. Joan Sutherland, Farnsey and Anthony Warlow. Yeah, right. And I actually have to admit, I don't know who Anthony Wallow is, to my embarrassment. Are you serious? Yeah, I don't. No. Bloody hell, I just saw him um, perform Jekyll and Hyde at Hamer Hall uh, about a week ago. Right, I'll have to look that up. I've I'll embarrassed be- myself. Best phantom uh, in the world. Wow. Yeah. That's a bold claim. One that I'm going to be honest, I'm not in a good position. All right, Google Anthony Warlow after this. <laughs> yeah, I'm, a- I'm actually quite offended by this. Oh, you? dear. There oh, you well, go, Toby. I've got to admit, this was yeah. not the thing I thought I'd bugger up, but fair enough. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. What political drama best captures the reality of life in politics? Maybe Sea Change, House of Cards, Thick of It, or Veep, or... They're not the only options, but yeah. I don't you- think any of them do. Right. I don't think any of them do. Mm. I... I think people who make those shows really have no idea, <laughs> no idea at all. Yeah, yeah, right. Is there a show or something that captures it, or is it? It's it's a bit like it's a bit like being at uni, and uh, you know, as young Labor members listening to your lecturer 
talk to you about how the Labor Party's internals work and you think, yeah, you've read a lot of books, but it's not actually what happens. So, <laughs> you know, I don't think anything can prepare you for the realities of politics. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, actually, that kind of leads on to this question then. What's the most unexpected thing you've found as an MP? I know you've been an MP for quite a while now, so it's, you know, this is less... Often we ask this of MPs who've just been elected, but what's something that still surprises you as an MP? The nastiness of some people, you know, that's another thing that you you just uh, can't prepare yourself for. Uh, there are a lot of uh, keyboard warriors out there mm. and, you know, you really do have to have a, a thick skin because mm. there are people who, you know, in the dead of night are prepared to uh, sit behind their device or their keyboard and uh, say a lot of uh, terrible things about you without having even met you. Mm. So that is something that constantly surprises me but of course they're outnumbered by all the fantastic people out yeah, there absolutely and uh, what's the most iconic landmark in bentley if people are traveling through what's something that stands out uh my electorate office no 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 <laughs> definitely uh, look there are, there are so many landmarks in the bentley electorate um Iconic landmarks. Well, the Centre Road Bentley Shops, it's a large shopping strip. It's sort of the heart of the electorate. Um, but I will I will name one other thing, and that is St Kilda Footy Club's new digs at mm. Moorabbin Oval, mm -hmm. um, which uh, our state government invested heavily in, and we brought the Saints back to where they belong um, in Moorabbin, and I actually became a St Kilda supporter in the process, so... Yep. Amazing. Well, uh, I hope, hope you have a, a good season uh, next year. Um, the only way is up. <laughs> <laughs> um, finally, we, we'd like to get our guests to pick a track to see us out. Nick, uh, what song uh, have you picked? I have picked Playing to Win by John Farnham, of course. <laughs> um, it's just one of those songs that really, uh, really gets you going and out of your seat, I think. Um, and, yeah, I've always liked it. Nick, thanks for joining us here on Pot of the Hill. Thank you so much, Toby. Too late.